The dam collapse that dumped tons of water on a Georgia Bible college killed 38 persons, half of them children, and many survivors lost almost everything except their faith. Martha Teichner reports. Martha Teichner was there. This report now from Martha Teichner. This time they are in Berlin, and so is Martha Teichner to tell you what's being kept under wraps. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. Martha Teichner found this story as a happy ending. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and welcome to The Long Leash. Do you believe in fate? Call it synchronicity, or the hand of God, or the universe. But for this discussion, let's call it fate. Do you believe in it? I do. And here's why. These synchronicities, this fate has occurred over and over and over and over again in my life. And it can be in small things like finding the perfect parking spot. A lot of people say I have magic parking karma because wherever I go, most every time I get a perfect parking spot right in front of where I need to go. And that can be in a you know, big parking lot at a big box store or on a busy street in New York City. I will arrive just in time and somehow a car pulls out and I'm able to pull in and I get the perfect parking spot. And somehow, after a while, I think, okay, this is fate. I am going to get this. Uh, it's a small thing, but pretty useful. Another example is back in college. In college at the University of Virginia, you would register for classes, at least back when I went there, using a number two pencil and one of those Scantron forms where you would fill in the bubbles with the number two pencil. And you probably don't know this about me yet, but I'm not the kind of guy who colors within the lines of a coloring book, shall we say. So invariably, I wouldn't exactly fill in the bubble exams, right? And sometimes it meant that I got registered for classes that I didn't intend to register for. Like this one time, I had signed myself up for stress management class in the nursing school. Now, I was not a nursing student. So I took the class and I was kind of a stress basket. I had grown up pretty stressed in life and boy, did I learn a lot. It was actually one of the lowest grades I got in college because I had so much to learn about stress management. I think that class may have very much saved my life because uh, I use the tools and resources that I learned in that class every day. I learned about self-hypnosis and I've listened to the tape that was introduced to me in that class or a digital recording of it probably thousands of times since that time in college and all because I filled in a number two bubble exam wrong. The hand of fate? Probably. At least in my book. And a final example I'll give you. When I was a kid, I had this recurrent dream of walking down the beach holding hands with someone who had a ring on their finger and it was a silver ring with a dolphin that encircled the finger and I didn't see any other details I just saw the beach I saw my hand I saw this person's hand I saw the ring well fast forward to six months or so before my 40th birthday I'm on the beach where I live I'm single and I meet a woman. That woman is wearing a dolphin ring 
around her finger. Her name is Molly. She is my wife today. We've been married for years. And I would say, certainly, that is the role of fate, the role of the universe, putting me in the right place at the right time and confirming it in such a way that it was unmistakable. Now, you may think, okay, this whole fate thing is fine. You're the guy who wrote the book, How to Meditate with Your Dog. It's a little woo-woo, but not everyone believes in this stuff. And certainly, when you get into the realm of journalism, you wouldn't expect a quote-unquote curmudgeonly journalist to believe in fate. Well, that's kind of what I thought. And that is why I think you'll like this episode so much. We are speaking with Martha Teichner, who is a inveterate CBS News correspondent. She has been there since the 1970s. She has been a war correspondent. She has covered major stories across the world. She is what you think of as a, you know, serious journalist. She's written her first book, first book ever, and it is not about journalism or politics or world events. It's about dogs, and it's a love story. It's called When Harry Met Minnie, and it takes place in New York City, and it's a love story on so many different levels. But what I noticed in my conversation with Martha Teichner and in reading the book is this continual role of fate. And so that's why I think you will enjoy this conversation. Here is Dogs and Fate and love and we were scheduled to speak for about a half hour we ended up speaking well over an hour i think you will enjoy this conversation here's martha teichner martha teichner thank you for being with us today thank you for inviting me when harry met minnie i was sharing with you before we started i was up into the wee hours of the morning listening to the audiobook version of this really amazing book it all starts in New York. I think it's a love story on so many different levels, but it all starts in New York on Union Square. Why don't you start us off? Well, in 2016, July 23rd, 2016 to be exact, I happened to be at the Union Square Farmer's Market at about 8.30 in the morning with my dog, Minnie. And uh, we were still both um, in mourning because... My other dog, Goose, had died a few months before, and um, we missed him desperately. And Minnie especially didn't want to walk. She didn't want to be herself. She was really despondent. I finally got her to go to the farmer's market with me on Saturdays, which we had always done um, for years and years and years, me with Minnie and Goose. Uh, I finally got her to go back. And there we were talking to some other people. One of them, Bull Terrier couple. Well, we can't exclude that part because you are a Bull Terrier fan. Yes. And we'll get into that. But there are not that many Bull Terriers out there in the market. No, there really aren't. And, and for a while, it was um, Bull Terrier Central on Saturday <laughs> mornings at the farmer's market, as many as four all gathering at about the same time. Well, I was standing there with Minnie and talking to the people who had Sonny. And I looked over and I saw somebody I hadn't seen in a year or two. This was someone I had known as a dog walking acquaintance on the other side of town near where I live along the Hudson River. And I used to see him every day with his golden retriever, Teddy. 
And he used to see me with Minnie and Goose. And we never exchanged names. It was Teddy's person and <laughs> Minnie and Goose's person. That tends to be how it goes. Well, there he was at the farmer's market. I hadn't seen him in a year or two. I had never seen him at the farmer's market. So he came over and said, well, where's Goose? And I told him that Goose had died and that I had been searching for an older bull terrier male to um, be a companion to Minnie. And he pulled out his phone and he showed me a picture that he had taken when we were walking along um, the river a couple of years before. And he said, remember, um, I took this picture of Minnie and Goose to send to my friend Carol, who had a bull terrier. And, you know, I sort of thought about it. It came back to me. And I uh, said, yeah. And he said, well, it's my friend Carol Fertig, and she's dying of liver cancer. And her dog, Harry, is 11 and a half and is um, nobody wants him. And she's desperate to find a home for him because she's been warned that she will probably have to have him put down um, because he will be difficult to rehome. And um, he said, would you take him? And I kind of... <laughs> I'm just getting some shopping done. <laughs> you know, well, I had been looking for a companion, but, you know, all of a sudden reality, bang, right. hit me in the face. And I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, once you really are facing the prospect, it's so easy to slither out. And um, I heard this sound bubbling up out of me saying, well, yes, if they get along. And that started the whole thing. And the thing that's so interesting about it to me and was in terms of writing the book is that if I hadn't been standing exactly there at exactly that moment, I would have never seen Stephen Miller Siegel, the person that I had been talking to, and he never would have seen me. And in all those years, I'd never seen him at the farmer's market, 20 something years of going there virtually every Saturday, I had never seen him. And so... Here we were at exactly the right moment, at exactly the right place. If it had been five minutes either way, none of it would have happened. And so there we were. You talk about the role of fate, and I want to get into that in a bit, because fate seems to be this recurrent theme in the book, which is why I think the book is so much richer than just a dog love story. But let's get into that in a minute. Um, you say that saying yes was really important. Absolutely. Um, I've thought about it a lot and I talk about it in the book. When you're in college, for example, you're looking in every direction and windows are opening and you're willing to try things and meet new people and try on identities that ultimately form you as an adult. Mm -hmm. But as time goes on, those open windows close and you get involved in your job, you get involved in your family, you get involved in your routine, you get involved in whatever it is that you have to do to carry on your daily life. And it becomes very hard to break out, to all of a sudden say yes to something that, that um, is um, out of the norm or that will put you on a different path or in any way makes your life troublesome or harder in any way. And um, I said yes. And it um, was really, really, really profoundly meaningful to me 
because it led me to a set of experiences that I will treasure for the rest of my life. And yes, there were sad moments and there were, you know, ultimately I knew how the story would end both for Carol and for Harry. But on the road to that, there was just so much richness and so much pleasure and so much fun even. And I came away completely revitalized in a way because I was able to break out and say yes. I think that's what's so fascinating about this book is it it chronicles your evolution from a curmudgeonly journalist. We don't want to say that because I mean you do Sunday. I'm you do Sunday. A curmudgeonly journalist. Okay, and it's the uh, generosity of spirit that kind of comes through because it sounds like at the beginning you're like, well, if it works out, I'll take Harry, and it was a very resistant thing. But it sounds like Carol and Stephen did a really what do you call it? A persuasive sales presentation where you assume the clothes. It was a presumptive <laughs> sale. And you fell into that. And it sounds like it worked out really well. Yes. I mean, my reservations, um, you know, it's a big thing to take on. Um, uh, Harry was 11 and a half. He had issues. His issues <laughs> in, involved his health. He w- had a number of um, obsessive compulsive behaviors that he took medication for. And he had some health issues like chronic colitis and so on. And um, Carol, in her first email to me, described pros and cons of Harry. And she described him herself as a money pit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, hmm, an 11 and a half year old <laughs> money pit. And I know that I'm going to be the one who will ultimately have to put him to sleep and go through the sad times. And I really thought about it. And then, of course, we had to figure out whether or not Minnie and Harry got along. But Carolyn and, and Stephen were very persuasive. And I wanted the whole thing to work out. Desperately. I really liked Carol. The first time they came over, Stephen had a car. And so he brought Harry and Carol over to my apartment. And um, we sat out on the stoop for a couple of hours and um, the dogs ignored each other completely. And um, Minnie kind of flounced herself around and showed Harry her behind. And Harry completely ignored her and went digging in my pocket for treats. (laughs) And um, meanwhile, uh, Carol and Stephen and I had a wonderful conversation. And, and you know, you worry about what it's going to be like meeting and getting to know and conversing with someone who's dying. You worry that it's going to be horrible, but it wasn't. Carol went about dying the way she went about living. And that was full tilt. And uh, she was going to enjoy her life as fully and for as long as possible. And at first I was a little startled because she said, well, I want to keep Harry as long as I can. And I had expected her to say, okay, here's Harry um, after two, three meetings, but it didn't work that way at all. And I came to realize very quickly that Harry symbolized life as she knew it that she had to keep him as long as possible. Because even if I said yes, having Harry till she couldn't take care of him anymore was how Carol clung to life. And anyway, I was fine with that because I really got to like the get-togethers. They were ostensibly to socialize the dogs, but pretty soon they were gatherings of friends. And Carol was one of those people who 
I instantly liked. I just wished I had known her for 20 years, not for a few months. And um, we had a grand time until she was too ill to have a grand time. But while she was able, it was great. And I just felt very, 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 um, you know, I hate to use the word again, but enriched by the whole thing. And um, sometimes Stephen would bring Harry and Carol over, and sometimes Harry would get in an Uber with with Harry and bring him over on her own, and we'd have dinners and conversations. and And she wanted me to see Harry in his natural habitat, meaning her apartment. So she had me come over to her apartment, so that of not that I needed to see his natural habitat, but I think Carol wanted me to. And it was also social. And Carol was arresting and larger than life, and very vibrant. She was almost six feet tall, if not six feet tall. She was a designer and she designed clothing. She had a clothing line in Henri Bendel and Bergdorf Goodman, two of the ritziest stores in New York. Uh, One of her garments is in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum. She designed for an absolute who's who of the famous names you see in all those pages that you turn to get to the table of contents in (laughs) magazines like Vogue. And, um, you know, she she did brand strategy or actual design for Calvin Klein and for Michael Kors and for LVMH and Harry Winston. And, I mean, you name it. She did stationery, furniture, uh, home accessories. And she just had an incredible talent and an artist's eye. And she always looked spectacular, um, just how she put things together. She wore great big black glasses and had short curly gray hair. And I describe in one part of the book how walking around the block to go to a mutual friend's apartment uh, for tea so that we could watch Harry and Minnie alone by way of a doggy cam to see if they killed each other while we were gone. I describe it as it was as if we I was walking around the block with Big Bird because people <laughs> would just look. And um, and she just had that way about her and everything she put together, uh, whether it was on herself or in her apartment or wherever, it just had this kind of chic artist's eye to it. And she was well-read. She was smart. She was incredibly funny. She had a rapier-like sense of humor, uh, which stayed with her till the very, very, very end of her life. You paint such a beautiful portrait of her, and you guys only knew each other for a short time, really during that courtship. But early on, you find out that she had known a little bit about you and had this crazy idea that wouldn't it be great if Martha Teichner would adopt my dog? Well, we shared the same vet. Mm -hmm. Again, fate or little coincidence. She had started to going to that vet when he was a junior vet at a practice near where she lived. And then he moved to Chelsea, where I live, when he started his own practice. And so she followed with, girly, what? My dog wants to go out. Um, Can I go let her out? Absolutely. It's Dog Podcast Network. We totally do that. Girly, come on, let's go. You want to go out? You want to go out in the back? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay. Go, girly. Go pee. Go pee. We are super dog friendly here. Otherwise, oh, you know, we Okay. <laughs> well, Mark is coming back in. I think he wants attention. I see. Well, I understand that. 
So you found out that, that Carol actually sort of had known about you and your love for bull terriers and thought, wouldn't it be great? If- yeah, well, basically what happened is that she saw my dogs at the vet one time when she was there with Harry. And she thought, ah, Martha Teichner has bull terriers. And she knew who I was because she watched Sunday morning every Sunday. And um, so when she was diagnosed with incurable liver cancer, she said to me, after this all got started, she said, you, you might not believe this, but because I knew about your dogs, she said, one of the very first things I thought after I was diagnosed was, wouldn't it be great if Martha Teichner took Harry? Well, of course, she didn't even have any connection with me at that point. And Stephen, who had been seeing me dog walking for you know all those months before he moved away to another part of the city, didn't know my name. And so when we ran into each other at the farmer's market, he didn't know my name and I didn't know his name. We knew each other's dog's names. It's such a New York thing, right? You just, yeah. I don't know your name, but I know your dog's name. Right, exactly. You know, Teddy's person, <laughs> Minnie and Goose's person, as I said. And uh, so all of a sudden we started putting together, Stephen and I, um, I introduced myself and he introduced himself and so on. And he realized who I was and told Carol. And um, then it all kind of fell in place. Um, but it turned out I had actually met Carol once many, many, many years before for a couple of minutes, um, probably in the mid nineties, um, you know, like 95, 97 and so on. I was walking up 10th Avenue, not too far from my house. And there was a restaurant with outdoor tables. And there she was sitting with her first bull terrier, a white one named Violet. And she had a great big kind of sun hat on and a kind of big, ample kind of gauzy dress that um, she had on because it was hot. It was summer. And she and Violet were having lunch. And um, so I stopped. I didn't have my then bull terrier with me, who was Piggy, the very first one I had, who I'd brought from South Africa by way of London. But I happened to say, listen, I have a bull terrier too. And we chatted for a few minutes and I never forgot this meeting because there was this singular looking person with the big hat and the and big dark glasses and a dog named Violet. You don't ever forget a bull terrier named Violet. I mean, <laughs> it's not something that just slips your mind. So um, I had actually met her then and it turned out it was the same person. It was unmistakably the same person. <laughs> So there were all these funny little connections, but um, because of this fateful meeting at the farmer's market with Stephen, Carol's wish became a reality. And and I I mean, think about it. What are the chances of that happening? The, The odds of that happening are very, very small. They are. And again, we'll get to fate in a minute because I'm very intrigued with that thread that runs throughout the book. Let's talk a little bit about the romancing period, the auditioning, if you will, where you were deciding whether Harry would be a good fit with Minnie. You had several dates and you described them as dates and you guys almost described them as like some Anne Boleyn-ish kind of romance. I wouldn't say Anne Boleyn because nobody lost their head. (laughs) Um, It was really kind of... um, Carol and I were like silly mothers matchmaking. You know, we we both um, found it a lot of fun to um, be 
eager mothers, if you will. And everybody associated with this, Carol's friends, every time I emailed and every time she emailed and every time there was a, a video of the dogs playing, the whole circle, I found out, got the emails and the, the videos, um, you know, sort of charting the progress of this this romance. And um, I would say that by the third time Harry came over, it was pretty clear they would get along, at least ostensibly. I mean, I hadn't been out of the apartment leaving them alone, and Carol was there, but they started to play with each other and roughhouse and do all the moves and Minnie diving under tables and Harry trying to go after her and and Minnie on the couch running back and forth, teasing him while he tried to figure out what was going on and and Harry with his uh, the metal bowl filled with tennis balls that he always carried around with him, jiggling it in his teeth and making noise with it and throwing the tennis balls and Minnie tearing after. I mean, that kind of thing made it pretty clear that they liked each other. But after that, we worked our way up to Harry and Minnie being left with me like a babysitter, and Stephen and Carol would go off someplace. And then it was that um, all of us would go off someplace like to tea around the corner with the doggy cam. I mean, there was a whole big thing about getting a doggy cam, <laughs> which um, we thought would be enlightening, but um, uh, it didn't show us very much. Um, <laughs> it was quite an adventure for, for Were you right about that ordeal? And you think you're going to reveal something, but yeah, it's just dogs playing. Well, it wasn't even dogs playing. It was Harry trying to get up on the couch <laughs> and sleeping. That was it. That's it. The whole reveal. Yeah. <laughs> kind of anticlimactic. But throughout the dating period, I mean, Harry would come over to your place, and then you went over and checked where Harry lived near Wall Street, and you described that beautifully. And you're, you are a storyteller. Actually, let's get into that, because, I mean, this is your first book, which is impressive, because obviously you've honed your skills of storytelling over the years, but to move to the medium of of writing a book is was a change what was it like having this as your first book and why now well i felt i needed to tell the story mm -hmm. um there are a number of reasons number 1 uh i started keeping diaries very early on because it seemed like a special set of experiences that were uh that were worth preserving that i didn't want to forget now, were these initially just diaries for yourself, or did you have this book idea in the back of your head? When no, you no, not for a while. I just started after the first visit, after the time on the stoop with the dogs ignoring each other and and the conversation, you know, just there before they it ever moved indoors. Um, it just felt special, again, because of the heightened timetable and Carol's specialness and the, the circumstances, and really because of the chance encounter, because it just seemed so amazing. So I started writing the diaries, and that was really totally for myself. And as time went on, the first couple of months, um, as we got further and further along the path, it became more and more special. And I realized that there was a story arc. And after 44 years at CBS News and another seven, eight years in the news business, you kind of get a sense of what's a good story. Mm -hmm. And so about two months in, I approached Carol and I said, um, I'm keeping these diaries for my own benefit because I don't want to forget anything that's happening. But how would you feel if I wrote a book or tried, having never written a book before? 
And I said, I don't want to do it if you say no, because this is your life. This is your dog. This is your death. And maybe you would prefer all of that to be private. And she kind of put her head down and thought. And then she said, I would be honored. And I was really touched. And she at first offered to help. Um, You know, I said, would you like to contribute to it? Because that would be nice. And the first thing she said was, well, can we have pictures? And I, who um, had no idea whether a publisher would even be interested, said, oh, I don't see why not. (laughs) And luckily enough, the book has eight pages of pictures. And she said, can you get my idea wall into the pictures? And I said, well, sure. Um, This is a whole wall of kind of like a collage of all the things that she thought were cool and interesting and people that she was influenced by and and visual objects um, that struck her fancy and so on or inspired her. So anyway, it went from there. And then in addition to wanting to remember, it became wanting to keep living the story. I didn't want it to stop even after it was over. And another part of it was that I felt that Carol and Harry at that point deserved a legacy. Dogs don't get legacies. And then, of course, now, since Minnie is no longer alive, that Minnie would have a legacy. Um, You think about um, mostly if somebody's dog dies, you feel it and you, you mourn for that dog and your family or the people who were close to that dog. Uh, have memories, but most of the rest of the world, um, oh, your dog died, and then they move on. And they don't necessarily realize that there are big, rich stories, and there are aspects of dogs' lives that intertwine with human lives and are unique unto themselves, that they deserve, they deserve a legacy too. Well, you paint that so beautifully. Let's talk about the pictures for a moment, because those pictures are pretty amazing. And the front cover is fantastic. When did the title, When Harry Met Minnie, sort of come to you? Well, everybody I talked to about it said, oh, you've got to call it When Harry Met Minnie. And it seemed obvious because, you know, a love story and the dogs really did love each other. And it was New York and it sounded so much like the movie (laughs) and so on. And, uh, it was irresistible. I mean, there, there was just never any other choice. <laughs> okay. And the picture on the cover? I took the picture. It's been doctored. There's a picture of the dogs cheek to cheek on a bench at Chelsea Piers. And what ought to be behind them is um, a cement wall and some bushes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Magic of Photoshop. Yeah. But because the publisher felt that it was... Um, important to let people know that the city of New York is a character in this book, as well as the dogs and the people, they decided that they wanted the New York skyline behind it. So they slotted in uh, probably the East River, because it looks like it would have to have been in Brooklyn to see the buildings the way they appear. And so there's a little bit of um, poetic license, poetic license. Right. But the dogs together cheek to cheek like that, that's absolutely a picture I took. That wasn't doctored at all. They really did come together cheek to cheek and, and um, liked being in physical contact with each other and were just incredibly lovey dovey. Well, it is a love story. As you say, a character in the book is New York itself. And you do such, you know, there are so many books and so many 
people who are enthralled with everything that is New York, and we have listeners all over the world. Why don't you describe a little bit about what makes New York special to you, and especially from the vantage point of being a dog lover in New York? Well, it's a huge city made up of tiny little villages, in a way. There are tiny little communities. Um, my little neighborhood, I talk to my neighbors, I know the people who live on my street. If you have a dog in New York, people talk to you. It ceases to be an anonymous huge city and becomes a set of communities. And um, the farmer's market is a community where all the same people kind of go at the same time every every week and see each other and the farmers see them. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went and I normally go when it opens in the morning and it opens at eight, but I didn't get there until about four in the afternoon because of some things that I had to do that made it impossible. And several of the vendors said to me, well, you don't normally come now. Well, they know all the people and these little clusters of, of friendship and community and connection are really what New York is all about. I mean, when you think of the, the great big tall buildings in Midtown, that's not what neighborhoods are like. And people create their own little neighborhoods all over New York. The dog walking people who see each other at the same time every day, um, who know the dog's names, but not the people's names. I mean, those are all little communities and um, it's very special. And the other part of it is that for me, I've covered huge stories throughout my career, but I am not the stories I cover. I tell the stories that I cover. And the world of my little community in Chelsea, in New York, and the farmer's market in New York, and the community around Carol, as I got to know her and as she was dying and I was deciding to take Harry and so on. That's my little story. Mm. And it's not huge, like something historic that I would be covering, say, in the Middle East or something, but uh, or 9-11 or whatever. But it's my little story in my little community, and it's special to me. And it uh, became very important and intimate to me to be able to tell that story. Throughout your career, you have covered a lot of big stories, and you were one of the few female correspondents who covered the Persian Gulf War, and you've been all over and covered some pretty gnarly stuff, Martha. And death is obviously a part of a lot of the stories you covered, but in this book, you talk about death from, from a very comfortable perspective, both of Carol and of having to put down dogs, including your mother's dog. Do you think that comfort and that ability to, you're connected to it, but there's an emotional detachment that comes with it, while at the same time, I get the sense that there's some strong feelings that come with it. Does that come from all of your coverage of world events? It's funny, I didn't think of it as detached at all. I didn't get that at all. Because when I was writing those various passages, it was unbelievably difficult to write. I was sitting at my laptop for hours just sobbing when I described them or when I was doing the uh, audiobook, recording the audiobook. There were places where I couldn't go on. I had to stop because I was either choked up or openly weeping um, because the, they're very, very hard for me to go back to. And when I was writing the book, 
they were very, very difficult to write. And um, if if describing them seems detached, I'm surprised because um, I wasn't detached at all. And um, maybe if- Well, let's put it this way. You had the ability to communicate it because for so many people, it is devastating. So maybe the word detachment isn't the right word. But I mean, when you describe, and I would love you to, to share the story about Winky, your mom's dog, you describe it in such profound, beautiful prose that many people would have just sort of compartmentalized that and not be able to communicate it. So my point is where I'm going with this is because you have seen so much death and so many horrific things, you have the ability to describe it still in very sensitive tones, but you're not omitting that from the story. Well, I don't think you can because it's part of the story. But I think that after a career of writing for whatever medium I happen to be writing for, whether it's radio, television, a book, Mm -hmm. there's a certain discipline that kicks in. But there's also catharsis in finding the right words Mm -hmm. and finding ways to communicate that, that you think maybe are the appropriate ways to communicate it. And I hope that that's what I was doing. Um, It took incredible work to find those words, but it comforted me to find those words. Well, my eyes were quite a bit weepy throughout some of those events, but Winky was especially poignant for me because you describe this Winky as your mom's dog and your mom had also succumbed to cancer. Well, I was living in London when my mother uh, was diagnosed with colon cancer, and it took several years for her to be overtaken, and she had several surgeries and so on and so forth. And she died in 1992, and I was going back and forth between Bosnia and Charleston, South Carolina, and London, and I mean, and I was in the Gulf War um going to phone tents in the desert to try to, you know, there would be these huge tents in the desert where soldiers would be able to go and call home. And I was with the soldiers and we were able to use the phones and it's like mirages in the desert. And I'd be calling from the middle of the Saudi desert to my mother when she would be in the hospital for surgery or getting better and whatever. And she died in September, 1992. And um, I was with her when she died. And her wish was that I have her dog Winky put down. And I was really upset at the thought of that. And she said, I've tried everything to find a home for Winky. Winky was 10 years old. He was a Cairn Terrier who had terrible, terrible allergies. I swear he was allergic to to the entire state of (laughs) South Carolina. And his fur was all patchy and his skin was all funny and and um he couldn't go out on normal walks because he was allergic to everything and he had cataracts and it was just unfortunate and because of her illness he was very shy and he would hide under the bed and people would come and take care of him while my mother was in the hospital and so on and so forth and and um she couldn't find anybody to take him. It was very similar to the situation that Carol was in, where essentially my mother was being told that her death sentence was Winky's death sentence. And um, I couldn't take him because I was living in London. I had another dog, 
a bull terrier named Piggy, the one I'd brought from South Africa. And at that time, there was a six-month quarantine mm-hmm. to bring a dog into England. And I wasn't too sure that Winky would even survive it because of his age and his health and his his uh, shyness and so on and so forth. Other dogs I had, the colleagues had put in quarantine, if they were older, some of their animals did not survive. Piggy survived it just fine, but he was very young when, when I brought him to England. I think he was three and um, maybe two and a half. And so it was different. And after my mother died, I waited as long as I could. I was putting her affairs in order and so on and so forth. And it finally came time that I had to go back to London. And I knew that after trying myself to find a home for him and failing, um, I thought, well, I really have to do this because there's no other solution. I can't take him with me. And when I did it, it was just wrenching. Um, this poor dog that hadn't been able to go on proper walks and, and had been confined because of his allergies and so on. I thought, okay, I'm going to give him some joy. And I gave him everything he liked for food. And I took him to the beach and played with him for hours at the beach. And then I took him to the vet and had him put to sleep and they wouldn't let me hold him, which just upset me deeply. They said, no, we're taking him to the back. And I said, please, no. And um, I was just torn to pieces. It was the most upsetting thing you can imagine. As Oh, you can imagine. Yeah. And that experience, I think, played a big role in my decision to take Harry, no matter what, hmm. because I didn't want to repeat in someone else's life or have any role in forcing that kind of situation on anybody else. And it just haunted me for years that I had to do that. And just really um, the the idea of somehow atoning for that um, in Harry's situation um, helped me make the decision. Well, I think you more than atone for it with, uh, with what you did with Harry. Let's talk about your love for this breed of dog. You said you first encountered these dogs in South Africa, right? Right. Um, I was the CPS News correspondent in South Africa for about three years, 87, 88, 89. And During the height of apartheid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the very violent time and the sort of violent convulsions of apartheid before um, P.W. Borja had a stroke and eventually things unraveled and Mandela was released from prison. He was still in prison when I was there. And... Um, we did a story on a winemaker in the uh, Cape area near Cape Town, where all the wonderful, wonderful wineries are. And um, this guy was um, a former rugby player. He was one of the most famous rugby players ever in South Africa. His name was Jan Boland Kutsia, and he has a winery called Friesenhof. And he had studied winemaking in Burgundy and France and so on and so forth and made really wonderful wine. And he set up a program that was very controversial among the winemakers of South Africa because he said, um, we need to treat our non-white wine farm workers well. And he set up an entirely different environment for people who worked for him than any of the other winemakers. He created a kind of a mobile health clinic that was like a bookmobile, but it went around to the different wine farms and provided a clinic 
for people. He built housing for his workers. Uh, the housing that he built for them was as nice as his house. And um, he created a parliament where the people who worked for him were self-governing. And uh, he slowly but surely spread this concept among the other winemakers. And um, part of his argument was that um, if you do this, they won't unionize. And the, the unions in South Africa were legal and they became a very, very big component of the uh, liberation effort um, and to overthrow apartheid. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of more backward looking winemakers um, were terrified of the unions because they saw it not only as a, a pressure on them financially, but more than that, political pressure. And so Jan Bolan Kutsia figured that, that, you know, he could um, convince them to do the right thing. A previous winery where he'd worked, a very famous winery that he had worked before he started his own, where he'd been the winemaker, he tried to set it up there and they refused. And um, he quit because they wouldn't do it. And uh, But anyway, we, we decided to tell that story because it was a very interesting story in the whole movement toward the end of apartheid. And we went there and spent several days. And he had a red bull terrier named Petrus, not named after the French wine, but named after the Afrikaans word, which means hard place, which describes a bull terrier perfectly. <laughs> and um, I just fell in love with his dog. And his dog really liked me and would come and sit on my foot and lean on me. And so when I decided after seven years of not having a dog that I would have a dog in South Africa because I wasn't traveling, because there was a yard, there was a, someone at home all day to um, take care of the dog and so on, and a housekeeper. And um, I decided I had to have a bull terrier. And that's how I... That's how you got Piggy. Yeah. And he was... He was a dog and a half. <laughs> and Piggy traveled with you from there to London, and Piggy had quite a passport. Yeah. In fact, I've I've done a lot of writing, diary writing about Piggy, and maybe there's a book in, um, you know, Spoiled City Dog and His Life on Three Continents, because he had quite a biography, and um, he was a character. And he um, lived in South Africa, and then it, when we moved to London, when he was maybe two, three, he was in quarantine for six months. And then when we got there, I, at first I thought, well, what am I going to do now when I got transferred back to London? And people said, well, you, you know, you're going to have to get rid of that dog because what are you going to do? You're going to be traveling nonstop. And I looked around. Nobody wanted him. And secretly, I was glad <laughs> after first crying my eyes out, thinking I don't want to give him up, but I understand this, blah, blah, blah. Then when nobody wanted him, I was extremely um, relieved. And I thought, well, even if he's in quarantine in England for six months and I ultimately have to give him up there, in England, people will want him. There will be a way to find a nice home for him. But in the meantime, I started having thoughts about who could take care of him. And I went to the nanny agencies and I went to the au pair agencies in London and said, how about a nanny or an au pair for a dog? And they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> but I finally convinced an au pair agency that being an au pair for a dog is a lot more, uh, a lot easier <laughs> and um, uh, more practical than being an au pair for a kid. This is the first time I'd ever heard this concept. I love it. I think you should trademark dog au pair. 
I think I invented it. And I've had probably two dozen of them since then. And the one I had um, last, finally over Christmas, got a job in his field and moved to Vermont. And the new one is supposed to move in next week. Which is kind of handy when you're a traveling correspondent. Well, that's uh, right now I've had the luxury of looking carefully and slowly because um, I'm not traveling so much, but normally I am traveling and I can't put a dog in a kennel every time I go away Mm -hmm. and it happens suddenly sometimes and it's not good for the dog. I, I always wanted the dogs to be happy and comfortable in their own home so that they uh, felt secure and um, content. And so that's why I've always had a dog au pair. And some of them have become very close friends. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you because this is a good time to take a break. When we come back, more with Martha Teichner. And now, a message from your dog. Oh, every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. Oh, I want to run. I want to sniff. Ooh, I want to find a good stick to carry. Oh, I want to roll in the grass. Oh, and warm my belly in the sun. Oh, I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want ever pop. The green, glassy beef liver smell wakes my senses. Oh, you may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. It infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. Oh, I can feel it. Ever pop traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpop you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpop, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpop is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpop Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Welcome back to The Long Leash. We're speaking with Martha Teichner. So we got Piggy, and then you have a succession of these bull terriers. Let's kind of go through the litany, because I think now your newest one is... Uh, Girly. Girly, okay. You've sort of gotten hints of her passing I through. did, yes. Well, I had Piggy, and um, I had to have him put to sleep, very sadly, when he was 14 and a half. Um, his kidneys failed, and I had him put to sleep in 2002. And then I got Goose. And, um, at first I tried to find a rescue and I kept missing the rescues and not finding one. And so I got on a list for a puppy and at first I thought I'd wait longer, but then I came up on the list and, um, I got goose and, um, he came from a breeder who was then in North Carolina and he was big and sweet and kind of relaxed and a kind of a schmoo. And um, he was very generous and sweet. And then when he was five, I guess, yeah, he was five. And I took him to the neighborhood dog boutique. 
I used to go and buy him treats on weekends as a way to get him to walk um, because he knew if he went to the barking zoo around the corner from me, he'd get treats. And so I got to the barking zoo and bought him his treat. And they said, oh, are we glad to see you? And um, I said, oh, why? <laughs> and they said, well, one of our customers um, has identified a female bull terrier at one of the shelters, the um, Animal Care and Control. It was then called Animal Care and Control. Now it's Animal Care Centers in Brooklyn. And um, she told them that uh, you know they should spay her and she would find a home for her. She was volunteering there. And they said, would you take her? And I said, oh, I don't want two dogs. Um, it's hard enough for me to get one from New York to South Carolina, where I go on vacation. And, you know, flying one dog is hard enough, let alone flying two. And uh, they said, well, talk to this woman. So I did. And I agreed to foster this dog. So the following Saturday, we met at the Barking Zoo with the two dogs. She had three dogs and two cats or three cats and two dogs. I think it was three dogs and two cats in a small New York apartment. So she couldn't take another animal. And so she brought this miserable looking thing <laughs> to the Barking Zoo. This dog looked like a skeleton, an absolute skeleton. It had a big stripe of yellow fur down its back from malnutrition. It had just had puppies. You could see every bone sticking out, including all the bones in her tail. Um, she weighed barely 34 pounds, and her sort of fully healthy prime of life weight was about 50 pounds. And so um, she was really emaciated. And I saw this thing, and um, I said, okay, well, we're, you know, they seem to get along. And so um, the woman who was volunteering at the shelter and I brought the dogs home, and we took her to the vet. And between us, we spent several thousand dollars that day on her. And the shelter had somehow botched her spaying, so she had a terrible infection. And so that was my part of it, the medical part of it, with the same vet who runs through this entire story. And um, I was fostering her for about five minutes. And um, she died after I'd had her nearly 14 years, um, on November 9th, um, she too had kidney failure and she was diagnosed on election day. And one of the vets at the practice was very kind and she came over every single night and gave her fluids and nutrients and antibiotics and appetite stimulants to keep her comfortable while I was crashing to finish. I was working on three different stories, one huge one for that Sunday. This was so that I would have the Sunday and the Monday to say goodbye to her. And then the vet came over on the Monday night, the 9th of November. And on the couch right behind me, um, she put her to sleep with Minnie in my arms. I was terrified that she would die scared. When she went to the vet, she would start shaking. The minute she walked out the front door, she knew she was going to the vet, no matter what we did, whether I tried to trick her with I used to order car services to take her to the vet <laughs> so that she might get tricked because she wouldn't walk. She just knew um, instinctively, telepathically that we were going to the vet. And I did not want her last few moments on earth to be terror. And so this wonderful vet came over and um, made it possible for her to be in my arms in 
the home she had known for 14, almost 14 years. And it was really a wonderful gift that she gave to me to let that be possible. And then after Harry died, obviously I adopted Harry or there wouldn't have been a book. Harry lived to 2018. I had him for 16 months and um, it was very sad to have him put down. And again, Minnie was despondent and I was despondent and I missed Harry terribly. And Harry turned Minnie out. Minnie had had to do basically these two losses, the loss of Goose. Who was her pal, her brother. Yeah. And then she adored um, Harry and, and Minnie were, were like lovers. They really were. They were like a Valentine card. So she was desperate again. And so I uh, went to a bull terrier rescue organization and they um, identified a bull terrier at one of the other animal care centers in New York that they described to me as five and a half years old, low to moderate activity, good with other dogs. Well, all of that turned out to be dead wrong, <laughs> whether he behaved differently at the shelter or what. This dog was wild. He had incredible anxiety disorders. And he was, um, the vets thought he was more like three. And the volunteer got him out of the shelter and signed all the paperwork. And I met him outside. And he, this man, probably 6'3", six, 6'4", six, weighing maybe 350 pounds, could not control him. And we got him home to my apartment and um, kind of shut him in my den. And immediately I got involved with the a behavioral vet and trainers and so on. Minnie and this dog that I named Slinky did not get along at all. Minnie took one look at Slinky <laughs> and attacked him. And of course, there was about at least a 10-year difference in their age. And Minnie was the loser of that battle. And there was no, it just, we tried everything repeatedly, the trainers and the vets and I, to make it possible for them to socialize and it didn't work with extensive training, five day a week training, medication, and lots and lots of exercise. Slinky did very well for about two years. And then starting in um, the end of May, there were these sudden episodes. Oh, in the meantime, he had lymphoma and had chemotherapy and radiation and the exercise he got in the morning, I would throw 120 tennis balls for him, and he would go down 10 stairs and up 10 <laughs> stairs and down 10 stairs and up 10 stairs. So 120 round trips up and down 10 stairs got him fairly tired. And then later in the day, the manager of a dog boutique not far from me, um, not the Barking Zoo, a different one, would come over and work him out for another hour so that it would take him half an hour to calm down and stop panting. And that all worked fine until about the end of May. And then all of a sudden he started having episodes of aggression. Hmm. And um, I took him to the oncologist for a checkup when it was time to have them look at him to make sure he was still cancer free. And on the way home, he attacked me in the back of a car. Hmm. And then he was very contrite and things went back to normal. The dogs were completely separate all the time. And when I would have Minnie out, Slinky would be shut away. And when Slinky was out. Minnie would be shut away. So that all worked. But over the next few months, there were several episodes. And then on New Year's Eve, I was in South Carolina with Slinky and we'd had a very easy time. He uh, was affectionate and he was calm and so on. But on New Year's Eve, 
um, he got really agitated. I mean, just totally agitated. And um, we had been in Charleston and we got back out to my house. My cousin and his wife were coming to stay New Year's Eve with me and we were going to have a nice dinner. We were sitting in the living room waiting for charcoal to burn down so we could do steaks on the grill. And I stood up and Slinky flew across the room and attacked me. Hmm. I mean, really. I mean, I had been injured before with these episodes, but this was normally if I yelled at him, no, he would stop and slink away. And this time he didn't. And if my cousin hadn't been there to pull him off me, I don't know what would have happened. My right hand got completely torn up. And my cousin got him into the kitchen behind a child gate. And we, with paper towel soaking up the blood, we drove 45 minutes into Charleston to the emergency room. And normally they don't like to stitch dog bites. But in this case, they did five sets of stitches because they were so bad. They had to stitch them loosely in order to have them come together. And I still can't fully close my hand. And um, there's still swellings and areas that are tender and the scarring is um, very tender as well. And um, that happened New Year's Eve. We got back. And from then on, every time Slinky saw me, he would try to attack me again. Mm. And something just snapped. And so on New Year's Day, I was just devastated. And we got Slinky's crate into my rental van and Slinky into my cousin was able to get him into the crate. And we took him to the 24 hour vet in the Charleston area and had him put down. And it was a a terrible thing for me because I loved that dog. And, and for two years it went well and I was able to give him a happy, stable, healthy life and keep him comfortable and play with him and give him some normalcy, which he didn't have before he came to me. And then it had to end the way it did. And I I still, um, yesterday I got his ashes back and I couldn't even look at the box. It it just touching it upset me. And it's, I, I still, every day it upsets me and I miss him. And this was a dog who could have killed me. And I think if it, it if my cousin hadn't been there, he might have killed me. And yet I loved him and felt that that it was just so unjust that he had all those strikes against him. And when I talked to the vet in South Carolina who put him down, she said, you know, it's very possible his cancer came back and went to his brain. And when I got back to New York, I contacted his oncologist here and said, is that plausible? And he said, oh, definitely, because it would explain why his medication stopped working. And it would explain the sudden episodes where he would just Jekyll and Hyde turn. And uh, but it, it, it all I can say to myself, and it's very difficult, is I did the very best I could to give him the very, very, very best life I knew how to do in the most um, humane way. And that that I I don't feel guilty, but I feel regret Mm -hmm. that it ended the way it did. And then the incredible irony of all of that is when... You know, I'm with in this bandage that's like a cast, except that they've wrapped all my fingers and parts of my hand separately in this thick 
bandage that I had bled through within a few minutes. There I was after we came back from getting him put down. And I sat down in my living room with my cousin and his wife, and I looked at my phone and I got a text and some pictures and video from the same vet from Dr. Farber's practice. He's the vet that runs through the whole book um, that, that Carol and I shared. But this vet who works for him, who was the one who came over every night and helped Minnie and put her down in my house, she said, look at the sweet, beautiful girl Chrissy found yesterday in Long Island. Chrissy is one of the receptionists at the veterinary practice. In fact, it was her husband who found the dog, a female bull terrier, no identification. It was in an area, an industrial area with garages and workshops and warehouses and that sort of thing. And he, his hobby is building race cars. And he was there and he came out and there was this dog jumping up and down, filthy, it was cold. So he opened his car door and whistled and she jumped in. And then he went around to all the different workshops saying, do you know anything about this dog? No. And so he took her home and they took her to a vet in their neighborhood, wherever it is, and discovered she had no chip and of course, no tags. And so I told the vet who texted me pictures of her about what happened with Slinky. And she said, well, the timing is amazing. So this was on no, on New Year's Day, January 1st. I flew back to New York Monday the 4th. I quarantined for three days. And at the end of that quarantine, I went over to the vet where she had been taken and collected Gurley. And she's called Gurley because um, Chrissy and her husband couldn't think of, they tried every girl dog's <laughs> name that they could try on her and nothing worked. And so they started calling her Gurley. She started answering to Gurley. So at the vet practice, they called her Gurley. And so she answers to Gurley and now she's mine. And another one of these chance encounters. Again, the hand of fate, destiny seems to be moving throughout your, your life as it relates to dogs and probably other things. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. I don't know. It's like some hand is guiding me or positioning me in the right place at the right time. Prior to writing this book and kind of looking at the role of this hand, this fate, were you aware of it? Or were you always kind of aware of like, you know, the, people call it synchronicity or, you know, the hand of God or whatever. Was that something that you were consciously thinking about? Or is this, did this process of writing help you suss it out? No, I was aware of it. I mean, I'd had other examples of it in my life. When a number of years before, um, I'm from Northern Michigan. And um, unfortunately, after my father died, my mother had to sell our house and the land around it because she had to go someplace and make a living because there really wasn't a living for her where we lived. My parents' business was totally connected with my father. And um, my mother ran the business, but my father was the sort of the person in the front and um, was a ski shop and importing company. And my father was a professional skier and uh, my mother didn't ski, but she knew how to run the business. And uh, anyway, it was uh, something that uh, always my mother and I felt regret that we had had to leave this beautiful area where we lived. We had 40 acres on a lake. And um, my parents had fixed up this house that had been boarded up for years and, and so on and made it a really lovely place. And um, I'd always dreamed about 
buying it back and so on and so forth. But of course, over the years, different owners had sold off all except the house with one acre around it. And I was up in that area visiting friends and um, I had already given 20 acres that I had inherited next to that property to something called the Leelanau Conservancy, which is um, a land conservancy in Leelanau County, Michigan. And um, it was the Teichner Preserve, Nature Preserve. And uh, I happened to be up in northern Michigan visiting these friends. And they said, well, we want to see where you grew up. So we decided to take a little trip to the house where I had lived. And at first we were going to do it on a Monday, but then it got switched around because the husband of my hostess, it was his birthday and we were just, things worked out that it was better going on Sunday. And so we took off and we drove and we stopped in the little village, not too far away because we wanted to stop at a market where they sold um, cherry sausage. Of course it's Michigan, cherry everything, right? Cherry everything. In Grand Travers in Leelanau County, everything is cherry. There's a company called Cherry Republic. Uh, and part of the story um, with Carol and Harry, I introduced Carol to Montmorency Cherry Concentrate from Leelanau County, Michigan. And it becomes a, a kind of a, a thing, the When Harry Met Minnie drink, if you will. And anyway, we dilly-dallied around and eventually we got moving and when we got to the house, I said to Jeannie, my hostess, she said, you want to pull in the driveway and say hello? Uh, because we could see that there was a woman sitting in a chair on the lawn. And uh, I said, no, maybe it would be an intrusion. And meanwhile, she pulls right in. <laughs> Jeannie is nothing if not friendly. <laughs> so we pull in and we stop the car and we get out. It's Jeannie and me and another mutual friend of ours who was also staying at the my friend's summer home. And the woman in the chair stands up. She puts her phone down. She'd been on her phone. She puts it down on the arm of the chair, stands up, looks at us and sees me. And she throws her arms out wide and says, I've been waiting all these years for you to come. And she knew who I was. She said, and, Martha Teichner. I, yeah, I and she and her husband, um, Jana and Eric Blakely, had been living in the house far longer than I did. And they loved the house and the land around it very much. And they invited me in and the others. And we sat around talking. And then they said, well, you want to walk down to the lake? And of course, I wanted to walk down to the lake. And the land that we had had that was all kind of wetlands with the cedars, we called it the swamp, but it was a wetland. And it had great, huge cedar trees was all kind of broken open because some subsequent owner had put a huge gravel road right down from the main road down to the water and had disturbed the flow of water through the area. So a lot of the trees had died and so on, but it was still, we walked down to the lake and as we were talking, I said, oh, I'd always dreamed about buying the land back. And the Blakeleys said, well, you know, about a year ago, there's a speculator who owns all this land. And um, he was talking about selling it. And uh, I said, oh, could you do me a favor and put in some inquiries about the status of it now? Don't mention my name, but just find out where things are. And I went back to New York and I was just buzzing. And they called me back 
few days later and they said, well, he's gotten permission. We don't know how to cut down all these trees Mm. and build spec houses. And he's two weeks away from bulldozing and he's hired the bulldozing crews and the, the, you know, the people to do this. And I said, is there any way to stop him? And, uh, they said, well, we don't know. That's just where we are right now. So I immediately called the Leelanau Conservancy, who had been very helpful in making it possible for me to give my 20 acres next door to them and turn it into a nature preserve. And um, I said, what can we do? And they said, well, let's see what we can do to help. And so together with them really in the lead, because they have lawyers and so on and so forth, They contacted the guy and I said, well, listen, you know, I can't do it overnight, but I can pull money out of my apartment in New York and buy it. And it turned out that um, there was 23 acres altogether. And then there's a seven acre wedge in the middle that was owned by someone else who said, if you can pull this off, and I don't think you will be able to, but if you can pull this off, I'll give my seven acres too. And um They negotiated with this guy and he, it turned out that he was asking far more than I could. I mean, basically I paid for half of it. I I refinanced my apartment to pull out money to give to the Leelanau Conservancy. To donate to the Conservancy, yeah. Yeah. And they put up half and concluded the deal and I put up half by paying them. And again, it was one of those situations. The Blakeleys were home on that Sunday. They said to us, we would not have been home on Monday. And if you had gotten here half an hour before, we wouldn't have been home because we went to church and then we went to visit Eric's parents who lived nearby. And um, apparently they were planning on going out later in the afternoon. So again, it's one of these, because we went to buy the sausage and we then bought some Leelanau County wine and made our way to the house. When we did, we were in the right place at the right time. I walked in completely oblivious to the fact that everybody around the lake had been fighting and fighting and fighting this guy and trying to prevent him from succeeding and getting a permit to cut down the trees and fill in the wetlands and had failed. And that because the Department of um, Environmental Protection hadn't acted on his request for a certain number of months, it automatically was approved. And the people around the lake were just crushed that they hadn't been able to fight this. I walk in and because I'm at the right place in the right time, by chance, I was the catalyst that made it possible to save that land. And I'm not saying I'm a hero. I was the lucky chess piece that got moved into position and the Leelanau Conservancy was able to pull it off. Yes, I was able to help. But now the Teichner Preserve is. I think it's 43 acres and it's preserved all the the woods that were there when I was a kid and um, protected that whole end of the lake. And after the deal was concluded, they took out the gravel road and they managed to, when they carried out the gravel, it was more than 350 dump trucks full to get the gravel out of the way. And then they built an elevated boardwalk so that the water could flow again. And every time I've been back, I see the land healing. And it's been just a wonderful thing. But again, 
chance, fate, call it what you want. And clearly that hand has guided you and helped with the conservancy and helped with all these dogs and obviously helped with, you know, giving Harry and this friendship that you developed with Carol. I have no idea why. I mean, it was just uh, (laughs) one of those things. I'm sure we'd need some theologians to get in it. It's it's pretty interesting. I am not a woo-woo person. I I am not someone who... This is the curmudgeonly journalist again. I mean, I don't look at my (laughs) horoscope and I don't um, play with Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff. But these things have happened in my life. I can't explain them, but I'm glad they've happened. Last thing I want to talk with you about is you mentioned a little bit about the cherry syrup. And throughout the book, I can't help but wonder, you are a foodie. Oh, yeah. So this is a a love story about dogs, a love story about New York. And it's also, if you read it carefully, a love story about food. Tell me about that. Not only, yeah, just tell me about that. Well, I don't know. I didn't think of it that way, but because, well, Carol certainly loved good food. And uh, when she started coming over, we discovered we had similar cookbooks and some of the same cookbooks and so on and so forth. And um, I would cook dinner when she would come over. And uh, when I went over to her place, um, she wasn't up to cooking dinner anymore, but um, there was always something about that. But I would definitely say that I'm a foodie. And the fact that I go to the farmer's market every single Saturday, unless it's so bad out that no human being in their right mind would go, uh, I'm there. And it matters to me. And I've uh, thought about, you know, the farmer's market is something that is so much a part of my life in New York. Um, I like to see the fresh fruits and vegetables. I spend far too much money there every single week because I'd much rather buy from the farmers than from a grocery store. And it just gives me pleasure. And I cook every night. It's not necessarily extravagant cooking, but I've always loved to cook. And my typical evening and um, will be this evening and, you know, is practically every evening is I get everything all set up to cook and I have an iPod with all kinds of books on it. And I have a little rechargeable battery operated speaker that I plug into the iPod and I listen to books while I cook. And of course, I've got a dog or two, um, depending on how many dogs I have at the moment, they hang around my feet. And while I cook, I slip them little tidbits. I, I, I have, I'll buy nice big steaks and eat this much for me. And over the next few days, you know, they get steak and they get, um, cheese from the farmer's market, which is a lot more expensive than the block of cheddar you buy <laughs> shrink-wrapped in the grocery store and so on. And um, and fruit. You feed your dogs fruit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, ha- I don't give them grapes, right. but um, I've always had a fruit ritual in the morning where we start with a banana and we work our way through anything and everything that's in season <laughs> or available, and we end with a date. And uh, when Goose and Minnie were alive, when they got the date, they would just leave the kitchen because they knew that was the end. They've had the dessert. It's done. Yeah. It's a complete thing. It's the Martha, this has been delightful. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. And well, thank you. your book is extraordinary. When Harry Met Minnie. Great book, great read, but I recommend the audiobook because your voice is so resonant and so distinctive and it's extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you very much. So after that conversation, whether it's food or dogs, don't you believe a little bit more in fate? 
We'd love to hear what you think about fate and the role of it in your life. Have you had some amazing synchronicities happen that you can't explain other than it's the hand of fate? Write us and let us know about that. You can contact us via our website at dogpodcastnetwork.com. And if you would like to share your story and give it to us in voice format, that would be fantastic. Just go to longleashshow.com. That's longleashshow.com. And in the bottom of that page, on the right-hand side, there is a blue microphone icon. You can click it and record a voice message for us that we may end up using on a future episode of this show or someplace else on Dog Podcast Network. We really want to hear from you. I love fate, as you clearly get. I believe that fate is guiding so many things in my life, and I'm always intrigued when people who come from different cultural, different spiritual, different orientations experience it as well, because it is that commonality, and it's very much like the commonality that bonds dog lovers. And so this intersection, if you will, of dog lovers and fate, to me, that is really, really cool. And we want to do more with that on The Long Leash. Well, that is our episode for today. I hope you will check out Martha Teichner's book. It is available in bookstores now. It's called When Harry Met Minnie. And also, I recommend getting the audiobook. It's so good because she has an inimitable voice. And if you like podcasts, you probably like audiobooks. So check it out. Again, the book is called When Harry Met Minnie. I'm James Jacobson. I want to thank Martha Teichner and everyone who's worked on this show for bringing it together. I want to thank you for listening. And I want to wish you and your dog a very warm Aloha. Where are you? I'm in Maui, Hawaii. It's rough. We can't all live (laughs) in New York. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.